thewellnesscouch.com, streaming wellness into your lives. You're listening to The Healthy Shift Worker with your host, Audra Starkey. Hello and welcome to the Health Issue Worker podcast. My name is Audra Starkey and I'm here to help you to manage some of the toughest challenges we face whilst working 24-7. And when we're referring to, I guess, challenges, uh, today's podcast is probably going to be about one of the biggest challenges that we can face. And I hate to say it, uh, often silent challenge um, faced by anyone working 24-7 and that's going through those feelings of stress, anxiety and or depression. So today's guest is a man uh, by the name of Sean O'Gorman, who is an ex-police officer and founder of the Strong Life Project. Sean is a critical stress consultant, keynote speaker, author and fellow podcaster, and knows firsthand what it's like to suffer from PTSD, which is post-traumatic stress disorder, depression, and to even battle with suicide. As a result, we've got some pretty intense content in today's podcast, um, but I feel it's so incredibly important to be talking about this stuff because I know there are a lot of people out there suffering from bouts of depression in various forms um, and are doing so in silence. So to talk more about PTSD, depression and mental health, I'd like to give a warm Healthy Shift Worker welcome to Sean. Hey, how are you, Audra? Thank you so much for having me on. Hey, it's great to, great to have you, Sean, um, on the show. I've um, been standing back and watching you um, a little bit with what you're doing, and I'm thinking, hmm, you would be great to have on the show. Yeah, thank you. Awesome. <laughs> yeah. But, yeah, so thanks for joining me. Now, uh, as I first heard about you, as I was talking about before we went to air, um, about uh, when I've listened to you uh, on a podcast uh, called Love and Guts uh, by Linda Graparic and I thought I heard your interview and I thought you know wow I've got to get this guy on my podcast because you're definitely a no-nonsense kind of guy someone who tells it as it is um, yes. which I think is just so important on this topic you know that we're about yes. <laughs> to discuss. Yeah, thanks I, yeah absolutely and um, sometimes I wonder if to my detriment, but I think it's, you know, the whole mental health conversation, looking after yourself, depression, whatever it is, just needs to be spoken about brutally, honestly, with no bullshit, because otherwise people have places to hide and then we don't reach out and get help. Yeah. Yeah. Good point. Yeah. Good point. Well, I guess first things first, um, Sean, like what led you to become a police officer? Was it something that like you'd always wanted to do as a, as a young yeah, kid? Yeah, sure. Yeah, definitely. So my dad was a cop for... 42 years he uh, when he retired wow. uh he like when I'm, before i was born he joined the police he was president of the police union here in queensland for years and very very well known at one point and i don't know if currently but certainly was the second highest um decorated police officer bravery in the country so he was a real hero to me and i worship my old man so from the day i was born that was what i was always going to do my uncle was a police officer and our whole family, I think, is gen- you know, the, my generation, my dad's got 15 kids in their family, Irish Catholic family, <laughs> are about that social justice thing and helping people. They're, so look at my uncles and aunties, cousins, there's probably 40 or 50 of us. The great majority are in industries and occupations that help other humans. So the police just led straight into that. Yeah, wow. Okay. I mean, I'll be totally honest with you, Sean. I mean, I... 
I can't imagine what it must be like to kind of work in the police force. I mean, I have a few clients who are police officers. Yeah, um, sure. You know, and I, I absolutely take my hat off to them for doing what they do because, I mean, I know there's no way that I'm cut out for something like that. Um, just the confrontation that we used to have at the airport um, where at times yeah. we had to call security and sometimes the federal police was enough to deal for me to deal with. But, I mean... What made you pursue a career that, I mean, let's face it, um, encompasses like a lot of violence um, yeah, and having sure. to deal with a lot of society's not-so-friendly people? <laughs> yeah, definitely. The thing, um, the irony, like I do a lot now, uh, I'm just finishing a couple of months of uh, about 40 critical stress training workshops with Queensland Police and, you know, for instance, this week that, uh, yeah, the week we're in now, I'm just thinking when, what week it is. Uh, like I've, I've probably spoken to over four or five presentations, maybe 300 police this week. And the overarching thing that I find with all police officers, or certainly the great majority, is we join because we want to help people and make a difference. Mm. And as, as hesitant as coppers are to put their hands up and say that, that's absolutely the motivation. And then that means if you're going to help the victims and you're going to help the people who unfortunately are preyed on by some of what I call the vile, cretinous humans in our society, then that comes with some violence and that comes with some not great stuff. And that was that never really worried me. Look, I, got, I was definitely scared. I got terrified. There was a whole lot of that. But to me, the overarching thing, and it sounds quite melodramatic, my thought process as a police officer, and I think many are, if I don't do it, then who does it? And I think it's just a some people are wired like that, some aren't. Mm. And the unfortunate downside of that is most police officers are very emotionally connected and caring human beings, even though they don't uh, often portray themselves like that or present like that, because you need to get a very thick skin and have a very mm. an impenetrable mask because you can't turn up at a job and suck your thumb and cry. If it doesn't work well, you've got to be on. And because police officers are often so emotionally connected and caring humans, that's why they do what they do, there's a real chance that you will have some sort of impact or injury from the shit that you see. Mm, yeah, we have to, we're all human, aren't we? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And that's one of the things I talk about in the presentation I do is I say police officers see more in one eight-hour shift than most humans see in their entire life. Yeah. And I break it down very simply and say, you know, think of someone in the in your life who's not a police officer. So for you, Audrey, you think of probably most people you know or your listeners and think when was the last time you saw a dead body and that's probably never or if it was, it would have been a reasonably innocuous situation probably where, you know, your 90-year-old auntie died and we found her asleep, you know, she passed away in her mm. sleep or something. Yeah, mm. you know, normal people don't see the domestic violence or child exploitation or fatal traffic accidents or some of that really horrific violence against humans mm. and police see that day in and day out for decades mm. so it must have an effect oh yeah yeah absolutely i mean i'm going to assume i mean for many years that you enjoyed your job because you're in the police force for like 13 years so yes what actually happened sean like was there you know was there a breaking point um, or was it more like an accumulation of things that happened over the time that you were with the force yeah no it's an accumulation definitely or some and like I was involved in, like every police officer, some pretty hairy situations. I had, um, I was involved in a job in 1994 in Fortitude Valley in Brisbane, where two two speed junkies, like two drug addicts, yeah. went out with the express intention of suicide by police, which means they go out and engage police in in uh, activity that means police want to shoot and no need to shoot and kill them to save their life, save the policeman's life. Wow. So 
we're in extended pursuit with them and they fired at us and there's 24 rounds in the vehicle in front of me and and they eventually both committed suicide meters in front of me uh that was what like that was probably the biggest job i did but you know there were a number of ones where there was another gentleman that i caught at the end of a chase um who was a jail escapee and as i was dragging him out of the driver's window of his vehicle with another police officer he was reaching back inside and later was found a what they call the SKS is like an AK-47 rifle that was an automatic, like a machine gun, effectively mm. with 30 bullets, 30 rounds. Mm. So you see that, you see a lot of that violence, you see a lot of that that sort of stuff in that job and it, it definitely accumulated over time and I was a very typical, I joined at 19, alpha male, pretty arrogant, very naive as to the impact and when I was, you know, and I was in the dog squad for years which meant I worked on my own. I had no partner. I had no supervisor. I took my police car, my dog, and my gun home. So I worked from home, which meant I no mm. paperwork. You didn't arrest people. You literally caught people with the dog. You tracked them through the bush after armed holdups or car chases or whatever. You catch them, hand them to the other police officers, and then go to the next thing. So also there's a, there's a pretty high intensity of back-to-back violent jobs, and I loved it. I absolutely loved it. And... Now I look back and go, if I could still be doing it now, I would be. And even at 48, it's to me, it's sort of a conflict where I go, well, really? I'm, I'm fitter and healthier now than I was then. But at nearly 50 years of age, would I want to be jumping fences at 3 o'clock in the morning chasing <laughs> someone from a stolen car? <laughs> the, my common sense goes no, but the driver in me goes, yeah, absolutely. Because I just love that challenge. But the analogy I use, it's like you have a bucket inside you that fills up with the shit from your life and the stress just normally. Put policing on top of that, eventually it overflows and mine continually overflowed to the point where physiologically my mind, brain, body shut down with post-traumatic stress, injury, depression, because I was just damaging myself all the time, I guess. Mm, yeah, uh, obviously living off the adrenaline and oh yeah. And, I mean, I would have thought like too. Even uh, I don't know if this is kind of valid, but you were saying when you were when you were on the dog squad, and you know you did have a partner. You had a four-legged one, yeah, um, <laughs> with you. But I would have thought you know in some way that could actually be a bit lonely because you didn't have sort of someone to be working with. Yes, to kind of vent off other and talk about it and unwind after the day and would that be relevant? Yeah, I think that's really relevant, Audra. It's something that I've I've considered but I haven't talked about a lot actually and then I think it's very relevant because essentially for eight hours or ten hours a shift, you are driving around in your own thoughts. Exactly. So, yeah, yeah so and for me, like I've got um, quite an ADD personality. I did a, recently did an online course like an online test some from a fairly reputable psychological institute and my partner and she does a lot of human behavior and performance work for athletes she goes oh let's do some of these tests and one of them that came back to me was like an adult adhd thing and i'm like yeah well i knew that when i was young though we didn't have it around mm. i'm a million miles an hour so my brain spins at a million miles an hour and as human beings we we love to catastrophize things and look for the worst possible outcome yeah. and we look for you know, drama, and I think it's that limbic brain, lizard brain physiology that just has us trying to avoid problems or danger. So I drove around like I'd go to a really dangerous job, then I'd drive around and think about it for ages and and yeah. Yeah. things no doubt that we will talk about with the, the shipwork stuff like mm. poor sleep habits, sleep hygiene was terrible, 
nutrition was terrible. It was all processed, a lot of stimulants um, like sugar and alcohol. And, you know, I didn't meditate. I didn't do any of that sort of stuff. So I just ended up in that absolute adrenal fatigue for well over a decade and you literally just burn out. Mm, yeah. Yeah, interesting. And also, too, I mean, yeah, obviously through the work, um, the 13 years that you were just, you know, yeah, keeping your head above water and just going about your, your, your day, going under some pretty high-stress situation. From what I've read, though, it also sounds like your life kind of interestingly, or maybe that's the wrong word, but ironically started to go downhill for you even more after you left the force. Oh, for sure. And the thing, in the, in the police officers call it the job. So in the job, I loved it. Like it was my identity. It was what mm. I'd grown up with in, yeah. in tongue-in-cheek. I say it's like I had 19 years service in the police before I joined because of my dad, and he's a thousand miles an hour police officer as well. And I just loved it. It, was, it wasn't just my job. It was me. It was my identity. It was what I, where I found my value. It was, to me, really somewhere where I got to – where I had a level of importance – where I had a level of influence over things that were pretty serious. Mm. So it wasn't just an innocuous sit in a cubicle and shuffle paper job. And then when I left, and especially leaving under the circumstance I did with PTSD and depression and then battling suicide, I um, like I lay in bed three nights in a row with a Glock pistol in my hand after drinking heavily and was so close to killing myself. And obviously I'm very glad I didn't. But to me, when I left all of that, there was the depression and PTSD stuff, but it was the loss of identity was huge and the loss of the brotherhood, the family of the police, the loss of like everything in my life was revolved around police. Mm. So then when I left and I felt so weak that I isolated myself from most of it, so you just feel so very alone, that was the hardest part. That was harder than facing the danger or the violence. And these days, you know, I still – um yeah, it's a silly story, but ironically, I was sitting with a police officer yesterday who was in the job, who's still who's struggling a fair bit with similar stuff, and he's having some pretty tough times. And him and I were just sitting, having a coffee, having a chat, and um, in Brisbane, and we're sitting at a, at a cafe right near a pedestrian crossing in a, a main sort of street. And he, I just heard a guy start yelling, and there was a guy walking across the road who was yelling at someone in a car and turning around, being quite threatening towards this person, like you know, wanting him to get out of the car and whatever, and banging on their window. And my, and my straightaway thought, I was up and walking over going, hey, champ, what are you like calling out to him? And I'm thinking, no, I have no fear in that. I have no fear of going to try and wrestle that guy or make sure that he doesn't <laughs> hurt someone. That doesn't bother me in the slightest. And I actually almost enjoy that ability to influence a negative situation. Mm. But the impact of not having that identity and that ability to help other people, yeah, nearly broke me. So, it's, yeah, it's quite sad. And isolating yourself where you're on by yourself is probably a real um, red flag, I suppose, um, to for anyone to kind of acknowledge. Do you think, like, I mean, you, you really need to sort of, um, I guess, make sure you've got plenty of support around you? Absolutely. And there's, you know, there's plenty of, the. I look back now and there's plenty of behaviours and red flags that, you know, increased. I had my, I got more and more angry. I mm. drank more alcohol. Um, one of the things I say is, you know, uh, the longer I was in the police, it was amazing how how people became worse and worse drivers. Just a simple thing, like I got angry and in traffic. And these days, I, there's more traffic on the road than was 15 years ago. And I don't get angry. I'm like, whatever. People yeah. just are where they are. <laughs> so you know, you've yeah. you 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 sort of buckets full. And that isolation is a huge part because, again, similar to driving around on my own 
all the time. You're stuck in your own head and often there's no way out when you've got your own problem. You know, the old problem shared is a problem halved is that that saying is around for a reason. If you and I discuss things that are going on for me or for you, then there's a different light shone on it and often in the light of day, it's not such a big issue when it's hidden in the darkness of your mind. It grows its own sort of life. Mm, yeah. In your opinion, why do you think there is such, you know, or still really this um, stigma, um, you know, attached to depression? Because, you know, when you were going through your darkest times, I mean, yeah, did you want to talk about it or were you kind of scared of wanting others to know that you were even suffering from depression? Um yeah, because yeah, I know I, that like it, there's more and more kind of high-profile people coming out and, and you know mm. and sharing it with now, which is great. But there's still mm. people out there that just uh, they just they're worried about what other people think. Absolutely, I was um, no, I didn't talk to anyone actually, mm. and uh, I got to the point where I was really the last shift I worked in the police was was a pretty hectic situation. The guy stabbed another guy 14 times, attempted murder job, and I caught him. And um, there was a struggle and it was pretty violent between him and I. And and um, I ended up having to choke him unconscious because he was trying to bash me. And, and when I left that job, I went home and broke down in tears and was shaking, woke up, went to sleep, woke up, was shaking, broke down in tears, having obviously some sort of mental breakdown and, and didn't tell anyone. And then went out, went sick from work and went to the races and drank for like 12, 15 hours and then ended up in a fight with my best mate who was a similar personality. He was also a police <laughs> officer and broke his nose. And, you know, it was it, – I was so struggling and so was he, ironically, but we didn't know. He was my best friend. He was my best mate and I had no idea because you don't talk about it. And police officers don't, but you know what? Men don't, women don't. When we look at a society where the suicide rate in our society is predominantly about 75% men, but the suicide rate in our country is double the road toll. And when we Whoa, look at it from that really? point of view, yeah, Far absolutely. Out. Oh, my yeah. goodness. Wow. So the suicide rate's double the road toll. And if you think of the money, resources, and attention that we put on the road toll, mm. and we have people who are literally so sad, for want of a better term, but they are so sad in their life and struggling and the isolation is what drives them lower, yeah. that we have people taking their life at double the rate of people being killed in road accidents. And there's and there's a lot of, you know, Beyond Blue and Are You, Are you Okay Day, there's a whole lot of stuff that's great. The Black Dog Institute, there's heaps, but it's still a behind-closed-doors conversation. Mm. It's still something when I left 15 years ago, uh, I wrote a book 12 months ago about it, or published it 12 months ago, and it was amazing to me then and I've done 15 years of my own personal development and all these weirdo, hippie, happy clapper courses or what I call them, like all these things that were just so not me. Hey, I was probably there with you. (laughs) Exactly, exactly. (laughs) And I'd work with kinesiologists and Mm. hypnotherapists and all of these alternate medicine people Mm. who I really was challenged by, but anything that challenged me I did because I knew I had to fundamentally change who I was. And through all of that huge process, I got to the point where it took me a you know, what am I, 16 years out of the police now, really 14 or 15 years before I spoke really openly. Yeah. And now people say to me, oh, you know, because and it's so out out there now, I've put a book out and, I'm, you know, I'm very, very open. But even before that, it's only a couple of years ago when people would say, oh, why would you leave the police? And I'd say, oh, because I went through PTSD and depression and battled suicide. And that's my answer now. 
where mm. before I'd go, oh, you know, it's a lot of BS and I just got too old to put up with the crap. And, mm. and oh, I, okay, you know, yeah. But, you know, so I just I wrote it off like that. Gotcha. And a guy I know very well, yeah. he's one of the bosses in the police, said to me not long ago, he said, mate, I didn't have a clue. I said, well, no one did. I said, my wife didn't know. I said, my best mate didn't know the depth of it. And mm. so you just come up with the excuse because we're terrified of looking weak. And I actually think it comes back, this is my super inquisitive part, it comes back to me to that caveman, cavewoman need and want to belong to a tribe to feel safe because if you go back 50,000 years, if we didn't have a tribe, then we didn't have shelter or safety or food because we all work together, yeah. that we're terrified of people judging us and being ostracized or isolated because there's that lizard brain basic fear of not being able to survive. I think mm. it's actually driven a lot by that. Yeah. Yeah, I guess it, well, it makes sense. You know, as human beings, we're these amazing creatures that have yeah, evolved um, over time, that's for sure. So when you started to talk about it and that night, now the weight must be like you must feel like this yeah. enormous weight off your shoulders. Um, you know, you know yeah. just, like not physically <laughs> and yeah, yeah. that kind of thing. Yeah. Well, it's amazing. When I put my – so I wrote my book and I was writing it for – normal people, inverted commas, not police, because I was so embarrassed. I was I, I was pretty harsh in my judgment, so I, you know, coppers won't listen and they're this and they're there. They're, they're not emotional and then blah, blah, blah. And ironically, they are so receptive to what I do. Mm-hmm. They still don't give a lot away. I mm-hmm. will, like, I'll have, I had 100 in a room on Tuesday and they interact and laugh at my silly jokes or whatever. But when it gets to the serious part of the conversation where I'm getting pretty tough on them about looking after themselves or each other, they just turn into statues. There's no emotion. Then I will get Facebook and email messages afterwards that are so open and connected and emotional that uh, I tick so many boxes. I'm in exactly where you were. Thank you so much. I'm going to get mm. help, and, which which I love, which is why I do what I do. But I go in the, in the moment, you look at them and think, they're not interested in all what I'm saying because of that fear of being judged. Yeah. And so when I put my book out, I wrote it. I put all the secrets in there that I'd kept for years for my whole life, you know, even stuff around when I was a teenager and I was, you know, struggle with different things like we all do, just natural stuff in life. I was like, you know what, I'm just going to write it and bear it, warts and all, because I just feel that's the best thing to do to help others. And now it's, you know, it's awesome because now it's not like I'm afraid of anyone knowing anything because it's all out there. Yeah. So it's it's literally, you know, I meet someone new and they go, oh, and, and, I've, and it's quite weird to me these days because um, I meet new people who have read my book and it's I still find it really bizarre because they're like, oh, and I'll go, oh, you know, I was a policeman and I did this and I did that as the siren goes fast. Um, and <laughs> I'll say, you know, I did this, so I did that and blah, blah. And they go, oh, yeah, no, no, I read that in your book. And, oh, you know, I know when you did this or you did that. And it's, I'm still get, getting used to that because these are secrets I kept from everyone. Mm-hmm. And now it's out in the world. It's such a freedom because I'm like, oh, well, if, you know, it's not like someone will turn up out of my past and go, oh, you used to be really arrogant, for instance. And I go, yeah, I know, like that I talk about it all the time. <laughs> yeah, that was or, me. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so, yeah. Well, you used to be this guy. Like, you know, mm. you had depression. I go, yeah, if you've listened to anything I've done for the last X amount of years, eight years, you would see that I talk about that. So having your fears and doubts and insecurities out in the you know out of the closet for want of a better term is mm. yet so peaceful 
Mm. You can kind of just get on with your life then and um, yeah. not worry about stuff because there's nothing to, yeah, to sort of hide um, per se. Yeah, in, yeah, it's, it's, yeah, interesting. I remember speaking to a psychologist a while back, um, you know, I think uh, it was around episode seven um, in my podcast uh, with a clinical psychologist, uh, Carrie Thompson-Casey, and she shared – uh, you know, how as individuals we really deal with stress very differently, but the effects can mm. be just as damaging. So mm. for our listeners out there who fortunately, although I know that there are um, police out there and other emergency service uh, people that will have probably seen some traumatic stuff as well, but I guess for those that, um, yeah, fortunately have not had to go through some of the stress and trauma at the level of intensity that you have, but for whatever reason um, are just not currently in a great place, what advice, yep. you know, would you say to them right now? Yeah, sure. So there's five things I'll touch on, practical steps in a second. The thing that I say is there's, my opinion, no levels of depression. So what I mean by that is whether it is from violence and trauma that I've that I'd seen and experienced for 13 years, whether it's somebody who, you know, might have experienced sexual abuse at some point, or somebody who might have been in a road accident, or somebody who, you know, grew up with a less than amazing parent, or, or somebody who lost their job, whatever. Whatever level, the actual blah, blah, blah of our stories is irrelevant because the impact is your impact. So mm. you and I may well go through, um, let's say we, if you and I were in a relationship and we break up from that relationship, I may walk away devastated and you might walk away and it might not bother you at all because that just affects us differently. Now, I may face a man with a gun and it might affect me 8 out of 10 and you may have some other incident that seems quite innocuous from the outside to somebody, but it affects you 8 out of 10 because it's your actual personal impact. So one of the big things I hate with this whole discussion is it's the, uh, I will talk to someone and hate a strong word, but it's true where I talk to someone and they go, oh, look, I've got depression, but mine's not as bad as what you went through. And I go, well, mm. there's no way to measure that mm. because it's not – we don't measure it in percentage intensity. There's not some sort of clinical biomarker that we can check in our bloodstream that says, well, mine was an 80% and yours was 62. So impact is impact and how we handle it are five such simple things to me that is sleep eight hours a night, eat clean food – like basically paleo, clean eating, exercise, you know, at least four times a week for 30 minutes, high intensity, meditate, and mental rehab. So that is listening to podcasts like yours, listening, you know, looking at the information you put out or podcasts I do or book or what I put out, talking to psychologists, you know, look, looking at what we ingest into ourselves in a mental state. For instance, like people say, oh, I spend two hours a night unwinding watching TV. And it's one of the things that I think is ironic. When I, and I used to do it all the time. And Rachel, my partner, sort of pointed it out. And she said to me, so what do you watch? And it was all drama. Like it was all absolute rubbish. So there's a genre called drama. And if you look at TV after 7.30 at night, there's three hours of it on every channel, mm. every Netflix show, every anything else. So you're relaxing by ingesting more drama, which gives your body the physiological fight or flight adrenaline response. Yeah which causes stress. So when you look at those five things, sleep decreases stress in the adrenaline response. Good nutrition fuels your body well so it can 
have the restorative and recuperative sleep and rest it needs and doesn't affect you chemically with serotonin so therefore it's the same adrenaline response and mental health meditate uh, training obviously just is great for you physically health and health wise so your lower blood pressure lower heart rate you're not carrying weights so your body's not physically under stress meditation slows your mind down so it helps dissipate the adrenal response and then the metal rehab stuff is any damage in inverted commas that's been done you can undo with professionals and there's so many things it's to me i go right you know in, in my presentation because i think i'm funny i'll say look get a pen and paper and write down this amazing thing you probably haven't heard of it it's called google and you go you know you can put anything into it and go how how can i deal with stress what's the best way to do this how can i do that and there's so much information. Mm. So I go, that to me, it's so simple. And depression is essentially a chemical imbalance. So, you know, your serotonin is not being produced or you're not getting enough dopamine or the melatonin isn't being produced because your sleep's ineffective. So when you dial in the things that as a machine that's 50,000 years old, that's our body, mind, brain, that dial in the things that make that machine effective – depression sort of takes care of itself mm, yeah interesting yeah and uh it sort of just really does um kind of reinforce i guess or um the the need that as shift workers you know we all know yeah. that we're meant to you know exercise and eat well and sleep well and blah 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 but you know, it's easier said than done, and I think absolutely. You know, for shift workers, we need to appreciate because of what ha- what is going on biochemically with our body mm-hmm. uh, when we are running on that limited sleep. It, like everything, everyone, and every bike, you know, part of our cell and body gets affected by relentless mm. sleep deprivation. So it just mm. has that cascade effect. So it's important that, uh, yeah, as you kind of mentioned, those sort of five kind of pillars, uh, it's really important that you're kind of addressing each because you can sort of focus on one and forget about the other, but you're still going to have like a wonky table or <laughs> something yes, um, correct. Along, along those effects. And it's, and it's funny, Audrey, even, even the when I gave those five, and, I'm, and I may well have misread your reaction, but your, your reaction's like, yeah, actually, that almost sounds too simple. Mm. And I think we can often make that mistake. The overarching umbrella of all of that stuff is get help. Mm. So if, if you have depression and you're not feeling great or you're just sad or you feel like crap or whatever your version is, get help. Help yourself through education information. Go and see professionals, see a nutritionist, see you. Obviously, it's what you do. It's all of those sort of things. But th- it is actually really simple. And... I think we are so we look for the magic pill or we look for it to be really hard yeah, because totally. if it's super hard, yeah. then there's an excuse why we don't do it. Totally. But if I say, you know, uh, some an analogy I love to use, if I said to you, Audra, so I will guarantee you if you don't exercise for 30 minutes four times a week, you don't sleep eight hours a day and you don't eat clean food and you don't meditate for 10 minutes a day, in a decade, you will die. Mm. That, that's guaranteed. There's no. I can tell you the date. I can tell you the disease. I can tell you where it happens. Mm. I can show you a video. Now, if you don't do all of those things in the intensity and the frequency that I tell you, you will die. You'll find time. Exactly. Then you'll do it. Exactly. And the, and the irony is, yeah. if you're not looking after yourself, you may well die in a decade's time, but you just don't know. Mm. And because we have no certainty over what happens then it's easy to brush it away and go, oh, well, 
no, it's fine. I'm 10 kilos overweight, but that doesn't really matter. Or I do this, or I smoke, or I whatever, you know. And it's really just about us taking ourselves more seriously as as people. Mm. And my my catchphrase, I guess, that I love is just if you being the best version of you possible everywhere. For me, the best dad, the best partner, the best man, just the best version of me in the way I eat, how I sleep, how I train, how I speak to people, then I actually run everything through that filter. I go, am I being the best version of me in this situation? And mm. if I'm not, then I try to change it. Mm. Yeah, I, it's similar to because uh, obviously I, I kind of hype on a lot about the sleep thing. Uh, and, mm. you know, I recently mm. did a talk where, you know, I, I did sort of share the, you know, let's let's get serious here. Like this stuff might scare you, but you know what? I kind of want to scare you Absolutely, because I want yep. to kind. I want you to realise the ramifications of if you don't do X, Y, Z. So you're more likely to do something about it. Um, yeah, but I just talking about relationships there. Actually, you're just yep. mentioning uh, leading on to. So, I mean, I really like to talk to you about relationships, like both at work and at home, because one of the things that I've noticed over the years from you know both working with my clients and as a shift worker myself is that we underestimate this toll, this ongoing lack of yeah. sleep on our emotions and our ability to yep. think, act, uh, respond and behave, which over the long term can have very poor outcomes on those who are closest to us, e.g. our friends and our family. What advice Absolutely. would you give to people in this area? Because sleep deprivation, at the end of the day, it is very much a part of what we do because it depends mm-hmm. on your uh, occupation and so forth. But mm-hmm. if we're not careful because we end up saying and doing things we wouldn't ordinarily do if we had enough yeah. sleep. Yeah. Yes. What advice would you yep. give there? Yeah, so a f- couple of things. To me, it's again, it's that emptying your bucket, right? So if your bucket's mm. full and so if your bucket's – if you think of a, a glass of water that has as much water as can fit, it actually brims over the top, if you like. So one little drop means a whole lot more comes out than that one drop. Yeah. So that's where you're at. If you're sleep-deprived and different things running on adrenaline because you're a, sh- a shift worker – that's where you're at. You're at. You are like stretched, paper thin. You're like a, a coiled spring, I guess, ready to snap. <laughs> so you're walking through the door, and Good you're, analogy. you're yeah, yeah, husband, wife, partner, kids, whatever. Do something, and you lose your mind, mm. and you you know blow up. And I use an example. My do dad, I love to death. Mm. Yeah. So my dad, who I love to death, when I was eight, so it was 1978. It was a million years ago, and he's a great man, but a man of the 1940s and never talked about emotion or whatever. He came home from work. I was playing with a mate, of, a little mate of mine from down the street. It was just on dusk. Dad pulls in the driveway, gets out. We jump out, scare him. He loses, gets a fright, loses his mind, and like, what are you doing? And blows up. I start crying, and then he doubles down. Like, don't be a sook, you know, because that was a generation and no judgment on him. But if he had just had the emotional awareness or education or whatever, which we didn't have at that stage, to say, oh, sorry, buddy, I'm just really tired and I lost my mind and I lost my temper. Losing your temper is fine because it's actually, that's what happens to us. We're all human, but then it's what you do immediately after that. So when you know yeah. you've done the wrong thing, we often double down and try to prove why we're right. Mm. And I think you have two choices in life. You can be right or you can be happy. Rarely can you be both. So <laughs> totally. you, know, you, you can mm. double down. And with my daughters, two very, very simple things that, one I do with my daughters and one I do with Rach, my partner, with the girls. We have a, a thing that we set up years ago for, because, you know, I get cranky at them when they were, they were like seven and four when I separated from my ex-wife. And one day we were just doing something, putting up a Christmas tree, ironically, and my youngest looked at me and said, why are you mad at us, Dad? And I said, oh, honey, I'm not mad at you. 
and I sat down and explained it to her. And I said, I'm not mad at you, babe. I'm just really upset because mum and I split up and I know you girls are sad and I'm trying to make Christmas really special for you. And it was only three months after we'd separated. And I said, so from now on, anytime you think I'm cranky, you just say to me, Dad, are you mad at me or are you mad at that thing? And then that's our code. So mm. now anytime, if I'm frustrated about something or I'm short with them or whatever, they'll say to me, Dad, are you mad at us? And before they even finish, I'm like, oh, no way, guys, sorry. Actually, I'm not even mad. I was just distracted or I was thinking about something else or I'm stressed about this or work or whatever. Not about you. Love you girls to death. You're the most important thing in my life. You're amazing humans. So no issue. And they're like, okay. And they walk away unscathed because kids are resilient. Mm. And then with Rach, she came up with something only a few months ago, which I love, where if we're talking on the phone or there's an interaction and either of us th- like can read something into it. So same thing, if I'm if I'm tired, cranky, distracted from life and she calls me and goes, hey, babe, what about this or what about that? And if it's something innocuous to me that isn't important at the time or I have something else on my mind, I'm like, yep, um, what, hey, yeah, yeah, whatever you think. Yeah, you do it normal human reactions we all have then she'll send me a text message and go hey gorgeous or hey babe are you um are you cranky at me have i done something to upset you or is there something else going on hashtag over communicating and so the hashtag over communicating thing to me is the the flare that goes up to go oh this message just means what's written there's no undercurrents there's no undertone Mm. you're not having a go at me so I read it and go, oh, wow. And I call her back and she goes, so sorry, babe. Oh, no, not at all. I didn't mean to be cranky. didn't realize I'd even reacted like that. No, I love you more than anything. No, we're great. She goes, awesome. No worries. Done. So instead of what we normally do, you come home tired, you have a conversation like that over something so innocuous, like, did you get the milk? No, I forgot it. This is the third time this week you forgot it. And then it just escalates. Well, you don't understand what I've been through. I've just been at work. I'm tired. Well, you don't get it because I'm here doing blah, blah, blah. And mm. then we just end in this one-up game until it's like Hiroshima. <laughs> and, uh, you know, we've had some World War Three, And there's just no need. Mm. And, yeah, I guess it's that, it is that difference between, like, I think guys and uh, don't – please don't take this the wrong way, but I no, think no, guys, I guys know, can be yeah. more black and white. Absolutely. And us, you know, us girls, we're quite complex creatures and we, yeah, can um, – yeah, look at things differently and stuff. And even when you were talking about your your kids there, uh, the girls there, they yeah, they just needed clarification because they would look, they could see things differently. Like from from your point of view, so it was good that you kind of had that discussion with them to kind of just nip it in the bud and say, yeah, like and, yeah. and what we do, or just sorry to cut you off, no, no. this is really important. What we do, we're self centric human beings. Mm. So in the absence of information. We, or evidence, we create evidence and it's all about us. So if yeah. you and I have this conversation in this podcast yeah, that's true. and yep. as I hang up the phone or as we're halfway through and you say something or, you know, whatever, my natural insecurity will go, oh, did Audra think that was good or did she think that was shit? Was she, did she say that because of what, like, so your cat might walk past outside your window <laughs> and distract you and and you might be like, oh, yeah. Um, yeah, no, good point. And I'll hear the change in your tone and think, yeah. oh, did she think what I just said was rubbish? Or mm. and then I feel then I can create this whole story of, oh, oh, she thought that was rubbish. And then that that could feed into the rest of this chat we're having. Yeah. That has me insecure. Second so guess what I say, you don't get the best of me and it ends up being a shit interview. Mm. Or you literally, because I don't have the evidence of what happened, or I go, Oh, were you distracted then? 
and you go, oh, sorry, I, I saw the cat. I go, oh, cool. <laughs> but we don't ask those questions and yeah. it sounds stupid. But we, we just, we don't, and I don't, it's a fear thing or why we don't, but I always ask those questions. Now, I'm really upfront with people and that's what, like Linda said, being a straight shooter, I just think I'd rather ask the question. If your answer is, actually, buddy, I think your interview's rubbish and you're boring me, well, I'd rather know than make it up for myself, you know, like it's yeah. that, uh, yeah. that human behaviour stuff. Yeah, being a little bit more um, intuitive, I guess, isn't it? Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Definitely. Uh, look, I had a question. I'm sorry, I've just got two more to go. Um, I had a, yeah, one sure. question. No um, rush. Okay. <laughs> okay, you, could, you might reject, um, uh, regret saying that now. No, just kidding. <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> oh, um, no. <laughs> um, yeah, I had a, a question come in from uh, one of um, uh, my listeners of the podcast because I should have just put out a few feelers. You know, I've got um, an ex-policeman yep. coming on. Did you want, you know, any sort of questions? asked and um one actually said that he he'd like to get your take on how much of like police misconduct matters along with errors of judgment is impacted by the lack of rest and 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 stress yeah huge amounts Mm. huge amounts and because to me and it's funny you know we talk about our insecurities when he when you say misconduct i straight away my defenses i'm like what no silly it's just another good human behavior right the thing for me is when you look at police, police are human, like neurosurgeons are human, like pilots are human. If you have a lack of sleep, you're in an adrenal fatigue, you are stretched, that you're like a cord spring ready to snap, then people make mistakes. Mm. So I look at it, the fatigue factor uh, certainly comes into play, I think, in more innocuous dealings with, with the public. So, for instance, if I'm tired and cranky, and, um, you know, I pull you up to give you a seatbelt ticket, traffic ticket, which I never did, by the by, because I hated giving tickets. But uh, if, if I did that and you, and you were like, you know, understandably aren't real happy about it, then that can escalate into me really being pretty aggressive because I'm like, you just happen to be the person that the straw that broke the camel's back. Yeah, right. In, yeah. A, in a sense of when police officers work shift work, and unfortunately, they're not robots and they don't live in a bubble. They still have families. They still go home. You know, they get home at 6 in the morning and their son or daughter is still up at 7.30 going to school. Um, my mum and my mum and dad got divorced when I was 12. But before they split, my mum was really adamant about dad's worked a lot of late nights and night work. And it would be like, Shh, your dad's sleeping. You've got to be quiet. So we would sneak around the house so we didn't wake dad. That's still so that that's a level of tension there. Whereas kids, I was like, well, this is rubbish. Like, why, you know, I've got to just not be too loud or we go somewhere else. So, you know, so there's a whole lot of stuff. So they still got their families, they've still got their life. And we, we miss that because all of that impacts. And then the fatigue just means you have a far lower resilience to bullshit, to be quite frank. You have a far lo- lower resilience mm. to many things. And there's some uh, research, and you, you would be well aware of this sort of stuff, some research on sleep that if you're awake for 19 hours, it's l- like having a 0.05 yep. alcohol reading, blood alcohol reading. Mm, if you're awake, you awake for 24 hours, mm. it's like 0.1. Mm. So 0.1 is twice the legal limit. That would be like yep. having six beers. Yeah. Now, so if you effectively are sleep deprived as a human, police officer or anyone, mm. will you make more mistakes? Absolutely. Mm. Yeah, actually, that yeah, that's just sort of reminded me. Um, 
uh, and you, you'd find it interesting because I refer to the police here, is that, you know, I refer to somebody that was to get into that sleep-deprived state, as you said, you know, got to the 19 hours without sleeping. So if you were in a car driving and you, exactly. got, and you got pulled over by a police and he tested you for blood alcohol and you were fine, what one thing he can't do is that he can't yes. test you for how much sleep that you've had, yet you are the equivalent to if you were drunk. And hence the reason my dad um, is, is a lunatic. His hobby was driving trucks and buses distance, you know, like semi-trailers mm. and stuff. He loved it. And that's why they have logbooks. So that's mm. why truck drivers yeah. and bus drivers yeah. or pilots yeah. or whoever, heavy machine operators, can, can only drive for a period. And then in a 24-hour period, you must have X amount of driving and X amount of rest yeah. because – you become less effective. So the fatigue factor kicks in, you make more mistakes, your judgment drops. And it's not even falling asleep at the wheel. It's as embar- an embarrassing a story as this is. I, um, I, in some stage, as a police officer, had worked you know, a number of 8 p.m. to 4 a.m. shifts, didn't sleep great. Then working at 2 p.m. to 10 p.m., what we called a quick shift, so finish at 4 in the morning, back at 2 in the afternoon. And you know, three or four in the afternoon, I was driving along near the police depot at Audley here in Brisbane and was just so tired and fatigued, just totally lost concentration and ran straight up the back of another car in my marked police car. And, um, yeah, which is a reasonably embarrassing event. And I look back now and go, wow, because my sleep hygiene was terrible, you yeah. know, nutrition, et cetera, et cetera. Pure mistake, straight out of lack of sleep. Talk about the police work, never made a mistake when I was under huge pressure in the life or death dangerous stuff. But in the innocuous, just driving down the street, absolutely, because of that sleep deprivation. Yeah. And I think that's a really good point because, uh, you know, like at the end of the day, we know, and look, there's some awesome shift working organisations out there that really do take care of their staff in regards to, you know, making sure that their rosters are fairly user-friendly. And I know I hear of others that aren't so, but at the end yeah. of the day, we have to kind of, um, we've got to be taking that responsibility uh, yes. ourselves as when yes. we are not, uh, when we're not there that, okay, oh, look, I've only got X, Y, Z amount of hours. And uh, I mean, I've, I've hear of uh, some organisations where they've only got the eight hour turnaround and that an eight hour turnaround on the shift, that kind of makes me, um, annoys me a little bit because yes. you're meant to be getting seven to eight hours sleep. The numbers yep. don't add up when you're adding no. commuting time and stuff. And, and I can appreciate- Unless you're sleeping in the boot of your car in the car park of the police station, then you're not getting eight hours sleep. Yeah, right? yeah exactly. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. But I mean, I'm not like, I don't know, are you quite uh, up with at the moment? Like how is the rostering at the moment with the police force? Have they got this minimum Depends. 10 around? Have they got the 12, 14 oh, hour shifts or? Yeah. The, yes, they, they're heaps better. Yeah. Heaps better than they were. Okay. Two decades ago however still i was at a particular place recently talking to a guy and he goes mate you know we're still doing eight hour quick shift turnarounds because we have a staff of 30 in a particular station and because of leave and other things and a couple of people are on maternity leave we've got 16 staff so unfortunately if you're in a policing environment that is such a responsive in majority of cases environment to community need right it's not like if you um for instance if you're having overnight freight drivers then they can go okay this truck's leaving at this time and it needs to be there at this time so we can structure what happens as a police officer you have no idea i might be driving along today and if you go back to the 2011 floods for instance a police officer i know who was working at um Tawong or indrapilly station when the floods hit down through 
um, Toowoomba and down through the valley mm. and those places that got hit really bad. Yeah. They um, they were working a 2 p.m. to 10 p.m. shift or, or 8 p.m., whatever the shift was, and didn't get home for, you know, 48 hours. Yeah. Yeah. So, and that's an extreme extenuating case. circumstances. Yep. Yeah, mm. and that happens in some of, in those first response yep. areas. Like I've got two of my cousins who are emergency doctors, and one of them does life flight chopper work. And um, you know, for those guys, you know, it's not uncommon for an emergency registrar in one of the major A and E rooms in you know any hospital to be working twenty four hours or twenty eight hours or thirty six hours straight. And then you look at it and go, wow. That's concerning when we know after 24 you've got a 0.1 BAC, mm. but they they have to, and it could be for any one of a number of reasons, but because people are presenting who are in urgent need of life or death medical care. Mm. So you can't say, sorry, Audra, I finish at 10, so if you come <laughs> in at 10.01 and you're, you know, you've you've got a hole in your chest from a gunshot wound, then you're just going to have to lie there till 6 because I need to go and get some sleep. Like, you know, it's just not practical. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think yeah, but at least we can appreciate that that it's it's more the extenuating circumstance rather Absolutely, than the yeah. than the yeah regular. Well, I've just got one more final question sure. um, to ask you is because as you um you know or I mentioned right at the beginning is that you do have um, a book that you uh, currently yes. uh, publish called My Dark Companion: The Long Road Back from PTSD, Depression, and the Brink of Suicide. Can you share you know with our listeners a little more about this book? Yeah, sure. So it's um. I never ever thought I would write a book. I'm not. I didn't think I had it in me. But I actually just started writing it for. Uh, like I've been coaching people in varying degrees in the last sort of eight years, I guess. And a number of people, just as I would use analogies from my own life, would say, "Wow, that really makes sense," or "That's impactful." And and my overarching want to help people and make a difference while I join the police was what drove me to write the book. Because as I look around in society and think, mental health, depression. All of those things is a huge factor and a huge problem mm. for every every you know part of society. Mm. I thought maybe if I write this book and really to be blatantly honest, I wrote in the first instance almost as a resume, if you like, to go well. Look, I've been through a fair bit of stuff myself, and I'm out the other side, sort of like the before and after Jenny Craig photo, <laughs> to you know be able to say, well, I've got a little bit of an idea about what I'm doing, and if I can help you, then please let me help you. Then as I sort of went through it more, I found it really cathartic and I loved it. And the story really is from when I was very young, I touch on briefly in the beginning of the book about a little bit about my family history, a little bit about my growing up, where I was at, a whole lot about the police and a whole lot about the 15-year journey since. Start about, And it's just a very much at this time felt like that, this time felt like that. And the response I've had back from you know, many people is – as they read the book, they just go through it and the, the, the phrase often uses, they go, wow, I tick so many of those boxes. Mm. And it's ticking the boxes to go about our lives. And, and I love my mum and dad to death, no judgment on them whatsoever. We're all affected by how we're parented, where we grow up and nature and nurture and all different things. And then that flows through to our life and how we react to and what we make the situations around us mean as we grow through our lives, determines our own self-worth and value, determines how we consider ourselves and look at ourselves, and therefore consider how we interact in our lives. So what, to me, is by highlighting a whole lot of my stuff, which is really raw and open, and I actually haven't read it, the book for 18 months, right, but I, I was on a plane for a couple of hours the other day and I was just flicking open a diff, 
different chapters and and even now I'm reading it going, wow, I can't believe I put that in there. Like, holy mm. crap, why why did I put that? Because it's some really personal stuff. But to me, it's absolutely just about having people go, oh, man, the stuff that I go through is normal. Mm. There's other people out there. Because every human being you know, and I use an analogy, if there was 10 of us sitting in a dinner table everybody's there with their best face on so no one really knows what's happening Mm -hmm. we all try to reflect those around us so we fit in because none of us want to stand out and we never get to the depth of what really matters and i really go out of my way these days in my life to be surrounded by people who are emotionally inquisitive and people who are willing to talk about the real stuff in life so i don't have friendships that are like oh how are you what about the broncos on the weekend oh you know i got my cat a new jumper like i just don't have that those what i call innocuous relationships because i want people in my life that i can speak about the deeper stuff with yeah that i can yeah. where i can go hey listen totally. like rachel and i i'll ring her and go hey babe i'm struggling like i don't know i'm really in a, in a tough place with something about the kids and then we talk about it. I've had a coffee with a, a friend of mine, a woman I used to work with today, who's a great friend. And we had an in-depth conversation about something for her that was really important and really personal. And I walk away from that going, that's what it's about, mm. real human connection. So the book to me was about showing people that having challenges and obstacles and struggles is absolutely normal and every one of us has them. We all have insecurities. We all have fears and doubts. And if we're willing to be open to each other, then if you're willing to go first, more often than not, I find 90% of the time the other person opens up and you have an amazing connection and friendship. When we're both shut off waiting, you know, trying to be safe, you go through your life surrounded by people but really lonely. Mm, Yeah, so well said. It's all about, I think, um, yeah, removing the masks and um, just being vulnerable and, uh, you know, yeah, forget the small talk kind of stuff. Um, (laughs) Yeah, let's get to the heavy stuff in order to make a difference, to make an impact. Um, Definitely. Because, yeah, otherwise you're wandering around with these masks and, yeah. Just for our happiness. Like to me, one of the final things to say is I go mental health, depression, whatever, really, we're just talking about happiness. We're just talking about how happy are you. And the thing that I find really interesting is so many of us look for happiness externally, houses, cars, yeah. watches, yeah. overseas holidays. Yeah. I love, you know, I do a lot of stuff on Instagram and Facebook for Strong Life, and but I don't look at a lot of social media because, um, or I look a lot of educational stuff, personal development or whatever. Yeah. I don't look at a lot of people's things because one of the things I find really challenging and it sounds, sounds pretty judgmental but I get, whenever I see somebody who's got a shot with that's perfect and it's got the hashtag blessed life on it or something <laughs> I just sort of you know I just I, I hope I'm, I'm not mm. offending anyone no, I, no. Just, <laughs> I, I just go well that's yep. bullshit yeah. because I mm. will yeah, as we're doing this this um, having this chat doing this interview I'm sitting at Kangaroo Point in Brisbane near the, near the river which I love this spot, and I've, I was sitting here one day doing some work and there was a guy and a girl who were take, taking selfie with the city in the background, and they took about eight of them. And they had this big smiley arm-in-arm selfie, and then when they would take the phone down and look at it, she was getting really angry at him because it wasn't the photo she wanted. And I could see, <laughs> like, she could see that they were having, like, this conflict. And I was thinking, wow, 
<laughs> this, is, this is so ironic to me that you are actually causing stress and tension in your actual relationship because you want to have a photo that betrays you're really happy to people who, <laughs> you know, that, that's what kills me. Yeah. I'm hearing you. I'm totally no, hearing you with the whole social media thing. Yeah. So I think it, we're starting to see a slight shift, be it very, 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 very slightly. Yes. But yeah, a I slight agree. shift, I think, is coming around a little more to kind of people just to, yeah, let's get rid of this perfectionism. Let's talk about more about the real stuff. and um, Just be authentic. Yeah, oh, Totally. Yeah, yeah. Look, this has been fantastic, um, Sean. I really could talk to you for hours, but um, I know our, our listeners are sleep deprived, so we probably yes, need right. to kind of <laughs> wrap up the episode. Um, but where can people find uh, more about your work, um, your book? Um, yeah, that w- that you just mentioned, which sounds brilliant, um, along with some of the workshops that you're currently uh, delivering. Yes, yeah, sure. So the workshops at the moment are only within the place. Um, and hosted, yep. so they're not open to the public. But yep. I will be shortly, probably in the next couple of months, launching something uh, like a, a few different online versions, and then I'll, you know, eventually run seminars probably in the next twelve months. But that's the long-term vision. Yep. The short-term one is anywhere you Google the Strong Life Project, you will find me. So I'm on Instagram, Facebook. I, if you're a podcast person, which obviously people will be listening to you, then the Strong Life Project podcast. I do like daily. 10 to 12 minute podcasts about different topics and it's just me rambling about what I think and uh, I've done 640 odd of those <laughs> every every day for the last couple of years. Wow. So, uh, and then the strongleftproject.com, there's links to my book or it's on Amazon or so if you Google Sean O'Gorman, S-H-A-U-N, O-G-O-R-M-A-N or the Strong Life Project, you'll find me in all the places I'm hiding. Brilliant. Excellent. Gee whiz, I'm only up to podcast number 50-something. I've got a bit of catching up to go. Well, but yours, yours go for an hour with other people. Mine, mine self is just me talking to myself, so it's, uh, it's a bit easier. Yeah, hey, look, I've actually only had a couple, like a two or three that go for an hour, um, and it's, yeah, but I have not wanted to stop at all because it's just been such a treat to be oh, thank talking you. to you. Um, this is just such a, a really important topic to talk about, uh, and I'm sure that uh, our listeners have, uh, yeah, gained um, bucket loads of um, gold from from what you shared with us today. Thank you so much, George. I really appreciate the opportunity, and it's just I love meeting other people like you who are obviously so motivated to help other humans. And to me, the basics of life is if we're all looking after each other, then a lot of the stuff in society that doesn't work fixes itself. I think it's a pretty simple thing. Mm. Totally. Here, here. <laughs> well, that's it for um, another edition of the Healthy Shift Worker podcast. If you enjoyed the show, uh, please feel free to share it with other shift workers who you think may benefit, as this will help me to spread the Healthy Shift Worker message to shift workers and organisations all around the world. If you like the show, I'd love it if you could go ahead and give us a five-star rating, as this will help my podcast gain even more momentum and greater reach and therefore help more people. If you'd like access to more free resources, including my newsletter, just visit my website healthyshiftworker.com and I've also just recently launched the second intake of my Better Sleep Intensive program exclusively for shift workers so if this sounds of interest and you're wanting to work not only on improving your sleep but your overall health and well-being too then just click on the Work With Me Better Sleep program link on my website where you can learn more about the program along with the application process. Thanks so much for tuning in and listening. Until next time, may you continue to be as healthy as you possibly can be despite working 24-7. 
This has been a production of TheWellnessCouch.com. Check us out on Facebook and join in the conversation on Facebook.com forward slash TheWellnessCouch. Subscribe to each show on iTunes and check us out on Twitter. The Wellness Couch, streaming wellness into your lives. Whilst the Wellness Couch presenter endeavor to provide accurate and helpful information to their listeners, these podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Wellness Couch podcasts.